Asif Kapadia won the Oscar for his documentary, Amy. Now he describes what he's learned from his professional highs and lows. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. I sat down with Asif Kapadia in March at the CPH Docs Festival in Copenhagen. Our talk is wide-ranging. We cover his early years in East London and how he started out in fiction films until Harvey Weinstein killed his first passion project. That led him to documentary and a career that's still evolving. I'd previously interviewed Asif four years ago in Copenhagen. You can hear that conversation on episode 108. He goes deep into the making of his documentaries on the race car driver Senna, the singer Amy Winehouse, and soccer star Diego Maradona. This year, Asif was back in Copenhagen to screen a new film he made with the choreographer Akram Khan. It's called Creature, starring the acclaimed dancer Jeffrey Cheerio. It's unlike anything Asif has directed before, capturing the artistry of dance well outside his comfort zone. Asif knew that Creature wouldn't reach the same-sized audience as Amy, but taking on the project was a way to push himself. Throughout our conversation, Asif speaks candidly about his setbacks and breakthroughs. I started by asking about his childhood and whether his family gave him encouragement or resistance to become a filmmaker. I'm the youngest of five kids, so I think that's why I'm a filmmaker, because by the time my parents got to me, I think they were pretty relaxed about, you know, what parenting is. I had three older sisters and an older brother who um, were around more in a way and more kind of telling me what to do, what not to do. Um, And I think a lot of it for me was about, I mean, when I think about it, about escaping from the house. You know, my sisters used to like watching television or soap operas. My older brother was 10 years older, so he was off having adventures. And I would, you're always looking for a space of your own. And in the end, it was getting out of the house. And so when a lot of people were were watching TV, I'd be out and about. quite young and just kind of having an adventure and coming home when it got dark. Um, And somewhere along the way, I was very much just making my own choices. I have teenage kids now, so around the time when I started, almost started working on films, quite young, 16, 17, worked on short films as a gopher, a runner, um, and that was my way in. I just realized I needed to kind of figure out, kind of wanted to escape from where I was from. I suppose that's what it was. I I grew up in Hackney, which is now very kind of cool and wealthy. When I was there, it was poor and cool, and like really like not a place that most people would never go to, kind of East London, very one of the poorest parts of the country. So we didn't have much to do, you know? And, And I always feel like, for me, filmmaking and just working on one short film became like me running away with a circus and, and traveling. Because my family didn't go, my, family, my background is from India, my background is Muslim, my family didn't ever go back to India. So I was a Londoner and I remember kind of, I'm very multicultural background, but also never particularly felt safe when I left London. I thought, okay, you know, there's gonna be some trouble. We had a lot of kind of the far right at the time. They've all come back again, they never went away. You know, so that kind of process of not feeling safe outside of London was always a thing. But there was something about being part of a group, working on a short film, which then led to longer films and other films. So I was on the crew, and I just loved being part of a community where you had to solve problems. And I always thought, I can solve problems. I don't panic, 
I don't get stressed. In fact, I feel calmer when making a film than outside of a film. Mm. It was almost like also being more alive, the kind of intensity of where your brain works. So I was like, I can do this. I like this. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to see where it takes me. When was the moment where you felt, I'm good at this? Um, I mean, I have to be honest, right from the first short film of working on a crew, I saw people who were older and more experienced getting in a real, like, panic about what seemed like really obvious. Well, why don't you just do that? <laughs> you know, it was like, I'm just there to make the tea or carry the boxes in and out of the van. But I was useful enough for the, the DP to say, because this was the first film I worked on was a U-matic, shot on U-matic, this old video format. And then the, the, the person who was operating the camera next week, she said, I'm shooting my graduation film in Cornwall, which is at the other end of the country in England, on 16mm film. She said, you were really useful. Do you want to work on my film? And, you know, I'll give you the train tickets. We'll put you up and feed you. You can come. And so myself and my kind of best friend at the time, Paul, got on this train to the other end of the country. And I think about it now. I've got a 15-year-old, about to be 16. I was about that age. I don't remember asking my parents, can I go away for a week with a bunch of strange people to work on a film at the other end of the country? Because you've only got two kids, so... But, yeah, you were the exactly. Fifth. By the fifth, it'd be fine. <laughs> but, um, but by two, you're kind of thinking, who are these people? <laughs> What film? You know, what you know. Anyway, so that, that was the first moment of someone saying, you were useful, come and work on mine. So I knew that I could do that. I would say when I started making short films, that was when I had kind of my own kind of universe and worldview. And the short films, you know, festivals are a big part of my life. Film festivals, going in, getting into a film festival, getting your film shown. So Paul, who I worked on that short film with, he's actually here. We did a film together after 25 years. He, he produced the film about who stole the painting, the screen painting. And so we made short films together at university. And our first student film was called, um, kind of our graduation film, Indian Tales, which won a prize at the Chicago Film Festival. So then we were suddenly, like, we couldn't get into any festivals in England, but we got into Chicago and we were there, and it was amazing. That's when you think, okay, maybe... Maybe we can do something here. Mm -hmm. Last time we were on stage here was four years ago. You had just finished the Diego Maradona film. It hadn't screened yet at, uh, at Cannes, but uh, th then we've had four years of you know, this weird uh, period. Um, in that time, you uh, made 1971, the year that changed music uh, for Apple. Uh, you were uh, one of the directors on a series about mental health, uh, the me that you can't see. Um, you just did this uh, VR piece, and you did uh, Creature. Um, I, I wonder what the you know, last four years have been like for you, you know, how you adjusted to this uh, period of lockdown. It's a big moment, I feel. I mean, during this period, I turned 50. Our kids like, grow up. We, I, I realize in other ways, it was a big deal because because of COVID, it was the first time I was at home since we'd had kids. So like having breakfast, lunch and dinner with the children because of the life that we lead when I'm a filmmaker, I'm always away, you know, or I'm editing or I'm doing something. So I might see them in the morning or I might see them in the evening, but I often don't see them for both since they were born, really, you know. And so that that was kind of profound. We spend a lot of time watching movies together and the kids are now really into cinema and movies. So that was a job done. Um, and, and actually, it was a bit of a turning point, kind of psychologically. It's really interesting to be back here, because I have felt there was a before 
obviously there was a before and after COVID, but also I, I, my producer and I that I used to work with, we don't work together anymore. So there was like a separation of like collaborators. And then in a way, also just thinking about, well, what is it that I want to say and do? You know, what, what is the plan now? What, and I felt because of what's going on around the world politically, what's going on just like socially, like kind of extremes of like wealth and poverty, I was thinking, I know I could keep doing the biogs and I get offered a lot, but I also felt I've got to start doing something about what I think is important. So the film that I'm working on, that I wanted to set up, the next thing that I'm in the middle of right now is like a doc set in the future, a dystopian doc. And just before we came, I came here to talk to you, I was thinking often before I make a kind of film that I'm, I always sort of do a tester. And in a way, Creature came to me accidentally as, a, as, a, as an option to make a film during COVID. I had done quite a lot of work, which was archive heavy and post heavy. And, you know, I was locked on my sofa at home for years doing like Zoom calls with LA or New York. Or, and it's like hell on earth, really, isn't it? Just sitting at home on Zoom calls and thinking you're making something, but you're just like never leaving home. So Creature came along. It only exists because of COVID. There was a show, a, a, a choreographer, Akram Khan, who's an amazing kind of contemporary choreographer, very well known in the UK and actually around the world, but he created a show, this dance, and they couldn't perform it because of COVID. So someone had contacted me and said, would you be interested in doing something? And I was like, sure. And then it went quiet because the first lockdown ended. Everyone got back to normal. They rehearsed again. Then lockdown two came along in London and it all shut down again, and that was a longer one. And so they contacted me again, and I had a Zoom call with Akram. And I'd known of him. We both started out at the same time. When my first feature film, The Warrior, premiered in London, we were on a panel together. And he was just starting off out as a choreographer, and I was starting out as a director. And it took us like 20 years to talk again. And, and the deal was, the show's ready to go. There's a window of two weeks. What would you like to do? And it could have been a short film. It could have been take them out into the streets of London and perform because everything was empty. And I was like, no, I, th I saw a rehearsal. I thought, I think this is pretty mad and intense. I, th I think it's a movie. Let's just shoot a movie in 10 days. Having spent years making films, Senna was five years, Amy would be three years, Diego was probably three years. You know, most of my dramas could be seven years in the making. And I was like, let's just do a film in two weeks. Fuck it. You know? <laughs> and actually, it's funny being here in Denmark, talking to people and talking to Mads, the programmer. I was like, in a way, it was like a dogma film. I was like, this is the restrictions. What can you do with the restrictions? And let's just try and make a movie. And all of the themes and the dystopian elements that are within it, is it about climate? Is it, it's, a, it's a ballet, right? So it's up to you. It's a metaphor. You read into it whatever you want. There's no right and wrong. It was really freeing after everything over the past few years to do something, just do it for the hell of it. Or everyone that worked on it was like, just did it because they loved dance or they loved the concept. And we, we just made something. And then I was like, let's make it and then figure out how to get it out. I want to ask you about navigating your career. And when we talked four years ago, you talked about the way Senna you know, kind of came to you and Amy kind of uh, came to you. Um, ah, and you said earlier that, you know, you've been kind of reflecting, you know, post 50 about, you know, where you want to, 
where you want to go. Yeah. Um, is that does that feel new? Like trying to be deliberate about what you're going to do with the next X number of years of your career? Yeah, I think. Yes, but also, you know, I started out writing and directing drama where I had to do all of the lonely work of writing a screenplay and then took this segue into docs in a way. And most people only know the docs, so it's always funny when people say documentary director. I'm, oh, I made some movies. <laughs> um, um, and now, now it's like, um, I suppose it's all a hybrid. I think the next thing, hopefully when I speak to you again, there'll be another project, which is a mixture of everything that I've learned all chucked in there. So it is fiction, it is documentary, it's archive, it's VFX, it's, it's everything all at once <laughs> in, a, in a project where, again, the fun of it for me now is just like to, to challenge myself, always challenge myself, but also experiment a bit with the form. And that's what I'm trying to do with the next film. And yeah, yeah created it myself and producing it and you know, putting it, all the financing together and having the freedom to build the universe of a film to say what it is that I think is important for me right now. So that's, that's where I'm at, yeah. Here at CPH, there's a lot of some first-time filmmakers or mid-career filmmakers. I don't think it matters what point you are at your career, there's still more to learn and to, uh, to figure out. And one of the things about getting a film together and getting a career together is finding your team of collaborators, not only on the creative side, but on the business side, yeah. uh, working with agents or distributors or uh, marketing people, um, financers. Um, I wonder you know, what you've learned in, in your career about you know, building that team around you and uh, you know, who's useful and, uh, and who's not. <laughs> <laughs> I can, no, who's not? <laughs> it's, um, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because I've been thinking a lot about this. I've tried to answer your question as best I can. Uh, yeah, absolutely. With crew, I have a regular team that I've been working with for decades. And actually, I'm trying to break that up a little bit, not because I don't like them, but because I grew up in a, in a world in London where most of the industry was white and male. And I was often the only person of color on a film. And now you look at the crew, you go, my God, it's kind of mad to just have like all male white crew, right? So that, we can't do that. So what, just to bring it to Creature for a second, there's a few things that were really important in this film. The producer is, is Asian. She was um, Pakistani British. Akram is Bangladeshi British. My background is British Indian. The principal dancers are all kind of Japanese and Asian. Um, and in the world of ballet, that's not normal. So a lot of this creature film was also the whole crew were people of color doing something which normally you don't get. And Akram had to push that through, I think. It's not normal to cast the people that he's cast. They're amazing. They don't always get lead roles. Um, so that was conscious decision to crew it in a certain way. Um, with with the kind of the industry now, I, I'm sort of, there's an existential thing going on right now, which is to do with, I suppose for me, it's to do with the power of the streamers. And where are we at? What does this all mean? Like, there are films, I've done films with streamers, I've worked with Netflix, I've worked with Amazon, I've worked with Apple, I've, 
my company have done things with them. What's interesting is also I feel very European, and I, you know, even though UK might be trying to leave, right? Bastards. Wasn't your choice. Fucking hell, idiots. I mean, it's gangsters. I mean, that's like part of the problem. We're dealing with racist nutcases, right? And, and you know, we are in a world, since I last met you, right? There we were, minding our own business, making a film about a footballer. Now, I live in a country where they can take away my nationality, right? If they think I'm a danger to the British society, because my background is from India, I'm born in London, British passport, the government can take away my nationality. That's the law that's coming. That's the world we're living in. So it's quite hard to just say, let's make a jolly little film about so-and-so. This is real. You know, so I think in terms of, coming back to your long-winded way to answer this, there are sales agents that I've worked with for many years. I've worked with Synetic for a long time. And so they were the people who sold Senna initially. They sold Amy to A24. I didn't know who A24 were because they were brand new. And John Sloss was very much like, I think I know who's right for this. And I had a couple of conversations with them, and they picked up the film. Um, Diego Maradona ended up being HBO Sports. Um, but uh, part of me also feels like, well, what if you make a film that doesn't suit them? Does it have a life? Can it, is it allowed to exist? What do you do now? I'm also aware of film festivals. They've been like the most amazing and important part of my life, is from short films onwards going to film festivals, showing your film, seeing work that may never get a release, and showing your own work, meeting people to collaborate with. My first producer I met at a film festival. Um, but what happens to those films that don't fit in with streamers? Where do they go? Do they ever get a release? Will cinema survive? I like cinema. I like going to see movies on the big screen. I don't, like I said, from very young, my sisters will watch TV and soap operas, and I'd leave the house. So I haven't changed. I can't, I don't get joy from sitting at home and watching TV for hours on end and going, did anyone come up with an ending for this? Or is the idea it just goes on forever until you get bored? I like <laughs> films that have a bloody ending. I like, I'll give you two hours of my life and then I want to get on with my life because I want to make stuff. And I find that challenging right now. I think that idea that, and also look, just part of the thing of making this film was, and the Leica thing, the VR film, was the first time post-COVID where I went out and I met real people, showed a film, and I had a conversation after the film. And I realized even if there's 10 people in a room, having a dialogue with the audience is really important to me. And making something that goes out and I never hear anything, apart from, if you're lucky, someone says 9 billion people watched it. Great. Why do I feel empty? You know, that's what I have been thinking a lot about is that in the end, I love cinema. And I don't want it to die, and I don't want cinema and docs to only exist at a film festival or award season. Award season is great, but it's not everything. It shouldn't be everything. There should be room for other stuff. And I think that's what I'm wondering about, is that what we have to just watch out for, as we've got like the rise of authoritarianism in politics, is there also a rise of like certain few people make a decision for what we're allowed to see everywhere in the world? Is that good? Well, you just described how you've worked with different distributors for you know uh, several uh, movies, um, and I think of filmmaking as half the experience being taking it out to the audience. When you finish the film, yeah. I mean, when you're making a film, you often think about 
picture lock as being the end, but to me, that's half the experience. Once you've made a movie, because the first film you make, you think that is filmmaking. I raised the money, I had an idea, I shot it, I cut it, I'm brilliant. And then the second movie goes, shit, it's just the start, isn't it? It's just the start. Now, how do I show it to anyone? How do I get it out? How do I get someone to buy this or distribute it? And, and so it lives on. You're right, absolutely. And then you realize, yeah, it's just beginning. And also, I think when you're making a movie, you, you're often struggling for power, struggling against the financiers, struggling against fate. Uh, um, but there's still a semblance of being in charge. Um, when your film gets bought by a distributor, uh, I think often filmmakers feel uh, less power. Yeah. Uh, you know, someone comes to you and says, this is the poster, this is the trailer, um, you know, this is the plan for uh, reaching an audience, this is the tagline that we've come up uh, with a film. Uh, can you talk about what you've learned in trying yeah. to navigate that power structure? My first feature film was a drama, The Warrior. And I, I spent years working on it. I wrote the script. I literally traveled around. It's shot in India. The lead actor was an actor called Irfan Khan. He's an amazing actor. It was his first film. And um, it was, had non-professional actors and professional actors mixed. Um, it's kind of epic. It was my attempt to do a Western. And um, it was a British film. And just before it came out, Harvey Weinstein bought it for the whole world. So in the UK, it was filmed for. And I did my homework. And I was flown out to meet Harvey Weinstein. And everyone was like, great, you sold your film to Miramax. I remember feeling, why do I not feel good about this? I, my spider sense was saying, this is not great. I heard stories about it. Right? I spoke to a few filmmakers who sold their films to him. And they did a three-picture deal. So I was aware of this idea that he wanted. So I go out to New York, and I walk. I get flown to New York, and I, there's this boardroom with loads of people around the table, all these execs. Many of them are British. Many of them knew me. They're all laughing at everything I say. It's all great. And Harvey walked in, and no one looked me in the eye again. I remember thinking, what's going on here? And I remember very clearly, none of you. I wasn't there with an agent. I wasn't there with my producer. I was on my own. As I was in the air, the meeting time changed to literally, I landed and had to go straight to the meeting. So I was kind of knackered. And he basically pushed the pile, like a bad movie, right? Pushed the pile of scripts across saying, you have to pick a movie. Your next film has to be with me, me or I don't release your film. And not only that, he's like, and your next three movies have to be with me. And I'm like, I. This is an answer to a question you gave a long time ago. And I was very clear. I was like, I don't do contracts with people. I, don't, I like working on my own. I like doing what I want to do. If I want to work with you, we'll find a project, we'll do it. But if we don't, he goes, no, you don't understand. That's not how it works. If I'm not guaranteed your next movie, I won't release it. And I was like, well, I don't want to do that. He goes, well, no one will ever know your film existed. So I spent years making this film. And I said, well, that's not the way to get to sign a three-picture deal. That's fine, no one will ever know. And he killed the film. Even now, that film cannot be shown around the world. And Irfan Khan, the actor, became a big megastar. He's in like loads of films in Jurassic Park, Spider-Man, The Lunchbox. He's a great actor. He tried, he died sadly during COVID. He tried to get that film shown because he's like, that's where I began, that was a film. Even when Slumdog won the Oscars for Best Picture, he mentioned The Warriors, that's what made me. No one can show that film. No one even knows who owns it anymore. 
So I made the film. I didn't sell the film to him. I knew this guy. I don't trust him. We now, he's in jail. We all know. People knew. But people were smiling away, selling their movies, making films with him, winning Oscars, and they were cool with it. None of them have come out and said anything. I remember thinking, where are all these people that were happy to work with this guy? He was always a boy. So that was my so perhaps, first experience of making a movie, right? <laughs> I that guess that softened was, you up for other... Uh, just well, no, then you're like, welcome to show business. Yeah. This is show business. It's business. And you're expendable. And so what I realized then, and you tell me if you think the industry's changed, what Harvey Weinstein did, he knew the best way to win an Oscar was to buy out the film not in English language category. He bought every film around the world. Mine was one of those films. He would then decide which film to release to win. So Jiang Yimou's Hero, I think, won that year. But I was in the mix, and so he bought it to kill it. And he bought lots of films to kill him. And it doesn't matter if you're a first film or you made 10 films. That's part of show business. And so all the people in the room who were smiling and joking knew that. So that's my first film. In Britain, it won Best British Film. It won quite a few BAFTAs. It got nominated. It was, it was selected for the Oscars. It was then disqualified. I'm pretty sure Harvey played a part in that. So that is one of the reasons why my kind of drama career, I can look at it now going, that was a big opportunity for me, and it died before it began on my first film. So then I had to find another way, and I ended up making Senna. And that became another life. And so that became another way of making films where I had a bit more control, for less money. I was running it. I could figure out how to tell the story. I was in charge of the edit. And the less money you have, the more power you have. But I knew how to make movies and how to tell stories and written screenplays. So I started to make docs in the style of fiction. And I brought my crew who did the music or people who did sound. Because I remember when, I, when I, everyone at the time thought documentaries cheap, bang it out, straight to DVD, make some money at Christmas. Right? That's what people thought Senna was going to be. People would just make a DVD, and dads will get it for Christmas. And I was like, I think it's a movie. <laughs> and I remember they wanted to do like classic thing that you have to do on docs. People still do. You have companies that do an all-in deal. You go there. You have the edit suite. You have your mix there. You have your grade there. You do everything in one company, on the cheap, laughing. And the production, love it. And I was like, well, I like working with different people for different tasks. And they were like, that's not the way. So they took me around one of these places. And the person who was doing the sound mix was doing a cookery show. And I'm like, that's not what I want to do my sound mix. Like, the person who does cookery shows. I'm like, this is a movie. <laughs> and no, I could see at the time we said, no one thought there was a movie in something that was available for free on TV. Why is that a movie? So I was like, well, I'm imagining this very differently to all of you. So. That became a different one, but it was a battle that I felt I could take on because it, even though it was Universal Pictures and it was working title, two big studios who never made a doc before and, and the producers, it was a smaller risk, which meant I could do more. Amy became the next level of different kind of risk with literally no piece of paper, no pitch, no script. It was just like, we'll go in and we talk and we, we can make a movie out of this. And I think the freedom came from realizing I needed to work on a smaller scale to do bigger things. You talked earlier about the way that the Oscar soaks up a lot of attention uh, in, uh, in the documentary business. Um, in the case of Amy, uh, you were the lucky winner uh, uh, that year. Only happens to one person uh, per year. Uh, it is a, um, 
it's a whirlwind experience to uh, go through it. I wonder now with some years perspective, uh, you know, what that meant for you and, and is it, does it change your thinking when you move on to the next film? I mean, it was, it's great, right? I can talk about it because I've been there, seen it, and, and we did it. Amazing. Um, and, you know, really proud of it. But also, and what I remember about it, it's bloody exhausting, you know? And, and I always think of that as a year of my life of starting with Cannes. We were, had this amazing kind of premiere at Cannes with Amy. And it was in the middle of the night. And it was, the, for me, the, one, my most profound and sort of intense experience of making a movie was that screening. And what happened was then the film did travel the world, and it was like a big hit everywhere. Um, it finished up with like the BAFTAs and Grammy and Oscars. And by the ending, I remember thinking, it doesn't feel it's about the movie anymore. It's about your speech. And it's about what, you know, photos and and I just remember thinking it started off with a movie and an audience in a room and an emotion of people feeling collectively an experience and it finished with politics it felt very political the experience of award season of you know you're all put on a panel and one of the directors speaks and then the other one speaks and that one tries to outdo that one even though we might all get along the kind of system was setting us up to pitch against one another, which I didn't like, I have to say. I'm like, you do what you do, you're great. I do what I do. We don't have to, we're not fighting. So I'm slightly troubled by the whole idea of, awards are great, festivals are great, but I also don't think it shouldn't be all about that, and it's becoming more and more all about that. I want to ask you about moving from film to film. When I think of Senna or Amy, those are now films that are main source materials for people understanding those uh, figures. And each one of these films, I think especially of, uh, of Amy, as you, you know, described before, the, all the, the, the relationships that were attached to that story, when you're making the film, you're immersed in that world, you, and, and that includes personal relationships, you know, relationships that you have with people in the world of Amy Winehouse that you're affecting how this story gets told, story that they have uh, a deep personal relationship uh, with. And then, and then you have to move on to the next, and you have to, you know, the next year be immersing yourself in a different uh, world. Um, can you talk about like making those transitions and, and what you, you know, carry with you from the from the past films? So I'll, I'll try to kind of work it out. One of the things is the, the the choices you make on which characters or which I had to make on you, you, my gut instinct of why I want to make a film about this person and not this person. A lot of it has to do with will they sustain for a movie? Is there enough? Is there enough character for me to make a film about and to live with? at an instinct level, because it's the beginning and I haven't done any work yet. So Senna, Amy and Diego were all characters that I felt, I think there's a movie here. And then you start making it and they're real people and two of them died early and Diego was not, not in a great way. So each of them, you then get to know everyone in their world. I meet everyone, I interview everyone to understand the person. You then become a part of that world. You then become a part of it and you try to 
a lot of people who might still be dealing with the death of a family member or the legacy of them or psychologically have been affected. In Amy, lots of really broken, troubled people because it was so raw. It was less than a year after she died when we started making a film, and it was like, is it too soon? So they don't go away. So you're still dealing with each of them. And in a way, you don't want them to. I don't want them to. Those films are part of my life and part of my career, and I'm proud of them. I don't watch all of them, but you know, you, they exist, and the people are real, and they exist. Um, and I think that is all comes back to that initial idea of when you pick a subject, be ready to live with it for the rest of your life in one form or another. You know. Um, if you're lucky, people like the film. If they don't, you've got to live with it for the rest of your life. It's got your name on it. What's interesting is kind of the legacy of those films is Senna's had its own legacy and how it was first reacted to by people as they didn't really get it. A lot of people were like, what are you doing here? You know, I'm not in it. It's not my voice. It's not me. It's not about my family. Um, didn't have interviews, didn't have talking heads. A lot of doc people kept thinking, what is this? Um, and then it served its purpose afterwards. It didn't get long-listed. It didn't get long-listed for any award. I don't think it won any awards from a jury in the US. It won the audience prize at Sundance, but I don't think it ever won anything, right? And that whole idea of like, how do we, do we rate films by which awards they won? I think that's a pretty good film. It's been pretty influential. Didn't win anything in the US. And with Amy, what's been Senna's been kind of influential in many ways, and in, and in Brazil, they made a series out of that, right? Amy, this is the mad one. The dad's now making a feature film, a drama. So I made that film. We thought we'd made the definitive film. We move on. We got on with our lives. There's, I'm still friends with some of the people, Nicky, the first manager. Now I talk to him, and it's like, you know, he knows someone's playing him in a movie now but which is being made by somebody else. And I'm aware there's another, that tension that I felt every time I did a q and I'm feeling it again, because I know Focus Features and Studio Canal are making a feature film, and I don't think I'm gonna make a feature film to say that doc, Asif, got it all right. <laughs> you know? And therefore, we thought we should make a movie. You know? So I'm thinking, right, here we go again. You, know, you move on, you make another film, but the tension and the pressure of the people who may not like it or you they don't go away, and they spend years coming up with a movie to tell another version of her story. And so that is happening now. They're shooting in London. I keep getting messages from people saying, it's really weird, I just walked across this shoot. They're shooting this actress playing Amy in Camden. So that is, I don't know what it's going to mean, but that film will come out this year or next year or something. Um, Maradona, there's been various series made. So each of the films, after we made the film, turned, someone turned it into a drama. Um, the other thing that's interesting is Amy's like on the syllabus. It's studied in, at A-level in media studies in England. Diego Maradona studied in Ireland, where they compare it to Macbeth. I think mean, that's kind of great. Young people are sort of watching them. I did, a teaching, I did some teaching a couple of weeks ago in London. There were like 500 16-year-olds in the cinema watching the film because they're studying Amy and, and asking questions, and their teachers were all there. And what was fascinating was a lot of them came up to me after and said, we saw the film in class. And it was so different at the cinema. Mm. And they were like, they could see the difference between watching something on a phone and watching it on a TV and watching it in a classroom to immersing yourself in a big screen and collectively having an experience. So yeah, that's the thing that I suppose I'm most proud of, that those films are being seen by young people as a comment on the media and the industry. 
want to thank Asif Kapadia for speaking with me. His best-known documentaries, Senna, Amy, and Diego Maradona, are available on streaming. Hear our previous interview on episode 108. I hope you'll subscribe to Pure Nonfiction's email newsletters. We have Producer's Notebook, focused on the business of documentary, and Editor's Notebook on storytelling. You can subscribe for free at purenonfiction.net. Thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Nordenswan, marketing manager Bella Rackling, our intern Sahai John, and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Raphaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. Follow us on Instagram at Pure Nonfiction. Fiction.